If you open the Pew Bible in the holder in front of you to page 515, you can read along with this, this morning's call to worship. It's Psalms 33, verses 3 through 5. 33, verses 3 through 5. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully, and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Our Old Testament reading is in Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. In your pew Bibles, that's page 191. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. And our New Testament reading is found in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. In your pew Bibles, that's pages 1,151 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Our gospel reading can be found in John 9, verses 1 through 7. That's page 988 in your pew Bible, page 988. John 9, verses 1 through 7. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I don't want to presume this morning to be able to tell you I know the whole work of God. I don't. I don't think any of us do. It's very difficult for us to have any kind of sense of what God is about and what his limits are and where he does and doesn't participate. I know that work is important and our work matters to God, but I know that uh, I cannot give a complete accounting to you this morning of his work, nor is he accountable to any of us for that work that he does. 
But I do want to explore some of our experiences, and I do want to explore some scriptural pieces that may help us in ascertaining a better understanding of the importance of God's work and what it is that he does and how it is that we fit into that. And that latter part, how it is that we fit into that in our work, will be continued as a theme next week. You'd be surprised how similar the work of God is and the work that we're called to do is. You see, he created us in his image. And as image bearers, that is to say God's image, our work is not dissimilar from his. And uh, that'll become, I think, self-evident to you as we, as we go through a few pieces, a few items here this morning of thought. I had a very strange experience this week speaking of the work of God. I got a call from somebody that I hadn't heard from in years. And this person is a Christian. She is evangelical, owns a, a gym of sorts, studio, workout studio, and she uh, closes that studio on Sunday. She's very devout and has a Bible study at her studio on Monday nights. And she had seen me walking in the neighborhood and had called out to me, but I was either preoccupied, deaf, or both, or she was too far away, something. I don't know. She, I didn't hear her. But she looked up my number, and she called me, and she said, Greg, it's Linda. I said, oh, Linda, how are you doing? It's been a really long time. She goes, yes. She goes, I'm sorry it's taken me a week to get to you. I didn't know. She said, I saw you walking last week, and she said, God told me to call you and to tell you to come Monday to boot camp and it's on me. You're not to pay for it. Well, it's hard to argue with the call of God when it comes with something free. <laughs> so I said, tell me more about this. She goes, well, I saw you. I called out to you. I think I was too far away. You didn't hear me. And I just felt impressed that it was something I needed to give to you. That it's important that you protect your health and that you model that. And it's important that I participate in that. Well, I don't know, some of you might remember four years, five years ago I was doing boot camp. And after a couple of years I kind of got a little over fatigued. I got a little bit tight in some places and old injuries, and, you know, it just sort of can work against you if you do too much of the same thing for too long or don't do it right. We can all get ourselves into trouble. But uh, I thought to myself as I put the phone down, I thanked her, of course, I put the phone down, and I thought how strange it is that God works in these ways, even in things that are of relatively little consequence in the universe. So Paul saw me in my underwear this morning because, actually, they were workout shorts, uh, because I had come to church in those, having done the uh, as many push-ups as I could do this morning thing, which was embarrassingly few, and as many sit-ups as I could do, which was embarrassingly uh, few. It turns out I can do as many sit-ups as I can push-ups. So my body is perfectly symmetrical. Um, I'm really proud, yes. Uh, 
Oh, anyway, so I look forward to the agony that begins on Monday, and um, if I'm hunched over next Sabbath, you'll know why. Uh, I will have begun the routine of, of rigorous exercise once again. I tell this story because it's kind of funny and it's cool, but I tell this story because I did not solicit this. I did not seek this. I did not look for this. I did not anticipate this. There was nothing about this that came from me or my initiation. I had been thinking about what I needed to do. I had even thought about boot camp, and I don't know how the universe works. I just know that Linda felt God had told her to call me. God's work happens in strange ways, in strange places, in miraculous ways, and apparently miraculous ways in, in, in terms I can't begin to fathom, both in complexity and in number. I, during prayer time, went and, and brought Scott and Lamar up because it occurred to me, I just, I just felt that it occurred to me, so many times we ask, and so many times we forget to thank and Scott is a walking, living miracle among us. Amen. After his first surgery, I went to the ICU and saw a dead man. I have never seen a young man hooked up to so many tubes and so many uh, life-perpetuating machines in my life. And so many wires. And it was, it was unbelievable to see him in that state because he's so vital. Scott, wave you, everybody saw you earlier. And this was, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago? One year year ago, yeah. And uh, just unbelievable that, that he was able to emerge from that and heal, but unfortunately what they were able to do for him wasn't complete, it wasn't enough. And, and as I shared with you recently, he needed to go to Minnesota and get another valve. And there was nobody in the country willing to do this operation but Mayo Brothers. Does God work? Is God busy somehow in our lives? Do we see his movement or his action? Our texts today have some amazing things to share, many of which we know already, but it's worth recounting. Because that's why we're here. We're reminding ourselves of who God is and what God does and who we aren't in light of that and who we are in light of that. You see, who we aren't is God. And if you remember, last week, maybe it was the week before, I was talking about the two things that we're prone to constantly in the lives we live, in the economies in which we operate. One is idolatry. The temptation to worship creature, not creator. The temptation to worship ourselves, to put our own agendas first, to think of ourselves in disproportionate value to everyone else. That's idolatry. And the other side of the coin is injustice. The way in which we use position, money, and power inappropriately in relationship to the rest of God's creatures and creation. And we are always guilty, it seems, of one or the other or both. This is the perpetual struggle that we have as human beings. So when we learn where God's place is and who he is, that's why we're here, we have a much better chance of getting it right and figuring out who we are in relationship to him as creatures. 
So from the texts we read today and beyond, I'm going to just highlight a couple of things that are relevant, I think, because God's works are too many and too great to begin to explore completely this morning. Let's start with the psalm. I'm going to take them in order that they were read this morning, and I don't want to reread them. Um, You can read, and certainly Ginger and Pete read very well, but we want to uh, just remind ourselves of what's going on in these passages and beyond. I had Psalm 33, 1 to 5 read, excuse me, 3 to 5 read, which is a hymn that begins, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. There are a number of such commands in the Psalms that we make music, joyful sounds, that we lift our hearts up, that we employ our instruments, and that we sing to God and praise God and acknowledge him. I was about to plug our empty orchestra pit, but I think I'll do that another time. The word of the Lord is right and true. That we did read. And five as well. The Lord loves justice. But look at what six says. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. What metaphor. He gathers the water of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. You know the creation story, the first work that we have an account of in our Bibles, in our sacred text, is the origin of everything. And the origin of everything is word. How remarkable. God's work is accomplished in word. In simple statement, that which isn't becomes. By word he creates and by word he saves. And so God's work is word. It starts with the creative word that says, let us make. And it happens. Let there be. And it is so. Science thought that they had finally figured out how large the universe was. And every time they come to a number, five or ten years later, they have a whole new number. What was once considered a universe is now just a galaxy. And what was once considered a galaxy among perhaps hundreds of galaxies is now a galaxy among hundreds of thousands of galaxies. And actually now millions and billions of galaxies. As it turns out, science is beginning to think space has no end. The universe is just constantly into expanding into what they don't know. Numbers so great we can't comprehend them. A universe so vast we have no way of beginning to tap its resource or understand it completely. We're just at the very beginning stages of exploration. Think about how advanced the Hubble telescope is, how beautiful the pictures are that come from that, how glorious the vision of the heavens is, and how incomplete 
and partial and flat. God speaks. I'm not here to talk about time frames. I'm not here to talk about how he did it. The scripture simply says he said, let there be, and it was so. God's first work is the work of creation from which he rested and from which he demands us to rest. And he celebrates. God isn't tired. Would you be tired if you said, let there be, and it was? (laughs) Maybe. I like that answer. Maybe. (laughs) Probably not. Let there be a three-course meal before me. Ta-da! That didn't take much, did it? That'd be kind of neat. If we could speak in it were, it would be a different world, wouldn't it? But did you know you can speak and it is? We'll get to more of that next week. But you can speak and injury can result. You can speak and healing can happen. You can speak and grace and forgiveness can flow. Your words have incredible power. Like the creators, you can define new realities. You can make new universes. Oh, they're much smaller. I don't want you to get a big head here. (laughs) They're not God-sized universes. But you have similar powers. For he made you a creature that speaks. A creature of word. The second act that the creator engages isn't one of the readings that we took, but you know that he has to confront... Adam and Eve in the garden, for they have mistrusted him. And there are consequences. And God, the original gardener, by the way, you see, we think of God as just speaking, not getting his hands dirty. Not so. In the creation account, we have God having formed a garden for man to live in. Now, you notice that that's specific. It's called Eden. There is, no, there, there is other vegetation, other fruit trees, other things on the rest of the earth. He's populated the earth with grasses and trees, flora and fauna. He's put animals out there, flocks and herds, the heavens team, the, earth's t- the, the seas team with life. But in this creation has been created a special garden. Not created by Adam and Eve, but created by God. So he is also gardener. And his work is to make everything he touches flourish. And he set man in that garden to tend it and care for it and develop it and grow it further. But with the curse came banishment from that very special place and the admonition that now out of the sweat of our brow would we eat. And indeed, that's the case, isn't it? Not only is God driving Adam and Eve from the garden because they can no longer have access to the tree of life, but he now must turn over the gardening responsibilities to them in much harder circumstances and kick in a plan devised long before the foundations of the earth were laid 
not just to be creator, but to be redeemer. God's work becomes explaining to Adam and Eve how his love is going to play out. And he does. Through the Old Testament period, God's work is no more fun than it was there at the end of the Edenic experience. He has to find people who are willing to listen. Now, I know that's a challenge. It's an even, it's a challenge for God as well. Because we listen sometimes, we hear rather, but we don't listen. We get the idea, but we don't implement the idea. We take the counsel, but we don't act upon it. I am a champion at this. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to see a financial advisor (laughs) and left the book sitting on the shelf that they provided me of what to do. You see, if you really want your portfolio to change or grow, you have to sell what they tell you to sell and buy what they tell you to buy. You have to rebalance things from time to time. You have to take an active role. You actually have to do something. You see, I thought just going to the financial advisor would make me wealthier. It turns out I actually have to do something. I have to follow his advice. And isn't that how we relate to God so often? Yes, no, thank you. We go to God for counsel. We look to God for counsel. We listen, but we don't do anything about it. And so through the prophets, through the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God found people who were willing to listen and willing to speak, and they went to the people and said, this is what God would have us do. Sometimes the people listened and sometimes the people didn't. And the work of God was to continue to speak and continue to speak and continue to speak. To restore nation, to restore people, to heal. And through those times, the ultimate healing was predicted and the ultimate healing came. God's work took a new form in the person of Jesus Christ. But before we get there, Let's spend a moment with Deuteronomy. So we've covered that one as well. Deuteronomy 32. I don't want us to run too far away from what is going on here. This is the song of Moses. Something he recited before all of Israel. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Interesting beginning, isn't it? The work of word, the work of speaking. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. And then this is what we read. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Praise the greatness of our God, for he is the rock. His works are perfect and his ways are just. He's faithful. So one of the works of God that we celebrate is his faithfulness to the word that he speaks. I don't think it's work for him to be faithful. I think it's an extension of who he is. I don't think it's work for him to be true, I think it's who he is. I don't think it's work for him to be honest or just, it's who he is. 
I don't think it's work for God to be righteous. It is who he is. But all of those things get translated and transmitted to us in word and in command and an example in biblical deed. We must, by faith, hear and receive and move and act. God's work is to continue to proclaim his character, and he does so throughout Scripture and mostly and obviously in the person of Jesus Christ. You know the story of the incarnation. You know the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You know so many of his teachings and his miracles and his parables. But the one I've chosen today is in John 9. A man born blind. Born blind. And in the convention of the day, the statement was made, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, somebody had to be at fault. Somebody was accursed. God had brought this calamity because somebody was out of harmony with his favor. So was the thinking of the day. And so they asked, arrogantly as always, aren't we, aren't we smug as a people? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that one or that one or that one. I'm distinct and special. It's just great to be me before you. You see, that's, that's the sort of arrogance that comes in the question that says, okay, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Oh, we laugh, but we're all that arrogant from time to time. We believe in the law of exceptionalism, do we not? Oh, pff, come on. I do. I saw the 65 sign today. I still went 72. It's the law of exceptionalism. That applies to the other guy until the highway patrol comes along, which he did. Fortunately, I saw him a long way back and shifted down. I've told you it has gone the other way before for me, too. God was with me. Oh, boy, I don't even want to tackle that one theologically. That's just really... No, I deserve to pay the taxes I've paid. Let me put it that way. We believe the law of exceptionalism, as did the apostles. We want to think that somehow we should be exempt. We should be special. And I know because when we get sick, the first question we ask is, why me? Yes. We don't ask the question, why not me? We ask the question, why me? Because we feel at some level we should be exempt. Right? So the disciples say, who sinned this man or his parents? And Jesus looked at them and said very bluntly, neither. Now, I want to ask you if you think that's really ultimately true. Do you think that that man's parents had never committed any sin? I don't. Do you think that man himself had never sinned? I don't. Jesus wasn't speaking to his status as a sinner before God. Jesus was addressing the question as to whether God's curse had fallen upon this man as a result of his actions or his parents. And he separated that out and said, no, 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 
It doesn't work that way. But I will tell you this. This was done so that the glory of God might be revealed. And then some beautiful words, words, begin to create a new reality. Jesus begins to talk about light. Now, can a blind man see light? Cannot. A blind man lives in darkness. And now words begin to create what is called illusion and metaphor. And a new reality starts to dawn out of the story because the people who can see that Jesus are talking to are living in darkness. They are blind. And the one he is about to free is about to be free indeed. He will see. You see, sometimes we think that it's only one dimension that we live in. But Jesus points out that it's much more complex than that. He made this story, this healing about spiritual sight, not just physical sight. And as we, if you read on in the story way beyond where we quit, you would find that it becomes very clear the leaders, the religious leaders, ironically, of the day are the ones spiritually blind, without light, unable to reflect the glory and the truth of God, unable to celebrate the generosity of the Christ who had come to set people free and to heal them. And so this man locked in a cage of darkness condemned to a life of begging, the lowest class among the Jews that could possibly exist, is set free with spittle, spat into dust that became clay and was smeared upon the man's eyes. And by faith he was sent to a pool to wash the mud away. And as he washed the mud away, the light filtered through. I am the man who used to beg, he said. I once was blind, but now I see. Do we see spiritually the work of God? I think everybody here basically has their vision, thank goodness. But do we see the work of God? Do we celebrate it? For Jesus came to make people whole, to declare them free. He came to forgive them. He came to liberate, liberate them. He came to empower them. He came to heal them. He came to deliver them from demons, from the control of, of evil. He came to celebrate the goodness of the Father and point people to the God who generously creates new worlds new ideas, new orders. Thus it was, and thus it will be. Because when we get to Revelation, the end of chapter, uh, the book, chapter 21, the end of verse 7, what does the word say there? Behold, I make all things new. Jesus is the restorer, the creator, the one who initiates reality and word, the one who's spoken words of healing and comfort, the one who speaks to us today. 
the one who sets us free. And the one who invites us to a world made new. A new order that he will speak into reality. Jesus, God, this being we adore and worship, works continually as your advocate, your priest, your friend, your redeemer, your conscience, your guide, your healer and director. Let the work of God wash over you today. Let the work of God bring the kind of healing and perspective and grace and hope and energy and truth in life that only a creator can give. Let the words of the prophets and the words of Scripture roll over you and leave idolatry and give up injustice and let righteousness flow like water. Let's embrace the gift we've been given because from what we can see, the work of God touches everything that we were made to be, that we've redeemed to be, and that forever we shall be. And now may the work of God in creation, redemption, and in making all things new flow over us, transforming us now and forevermore. Amen.